The eggshell rule, also thin skull rule, papier-mâché plaintiff rule or talum qualum rule, is a well-established legal doctrine in common law, used in some tort law systems, with a similar doctrine applicable to criminal law. The rule states that, in a tort case, the unexpected frailty of the injured person is not a valid defense to the seriousness of any injury caused to them. Law. This rule holds that a tortfeasor is liable for all consequences resulting from their tortious, usually negligent, activities leading to an injury to another person, even if the victim suffers an unusually high level of damage, for example due to a pre-existing vulnerability or medical condition. The eggshell skull rule takes into account the physical, social, and economic attributes of the plaintiff which might make them more susceptible to injury. It may also take into account the family and cultural environment. The term implies that if a person had a skull as delicate as that of the shell of an egg, and a tortfeasor who was unaware of the condition injured that person's head, causing the skull unexpectedly to break, the defendant would be held liable for all damages resulting from the wrongful contact, even if the tortfeasor did not intend to cause such a severe injury. In criminal law, the general maxim is that the defendant must take their victims as they find them, as echoed in the judgment of Lord Justice Lawton in our for example Blauat, 1975, in which the defendant was held responsible for killing his victim, despite his contention that her refusal of a blood transfusion constituted an intervening act. The doctrine is applied in all areas of torts, intentional torts, negligence, and strict liability cases, as well as in criminal law. There is no requirement of physical contact with a victim, if a trespasser's wrongful presence on the victim's property so terrifies the victim that he has a fatal heart attack, the trespasser will be liable for the damages stemming from his original tort. The foundation for this rule is based primarily on policy grounds. The courts do not want the defendant or accused to rely on the victim's own vulnerability to avoid liability. The thin skull rule is not to be confused with the related crumbling skull rule in which the plaintiff suffers from a detrimental position, from a prior injury, for instance, pre-existent to the occurrence of the present tort. In the crumbling skull rule, the prior condition is only to be considered with respect to distinguishing it from any new injury arising from the present tort, as a means of apportioning damages in such a way that the defendant would not be liable for placing the plaintiff in a better position than they were in prior to the present tort. Example. In an example, a person who has osteogenesis imperfecta, also known as brittle bone syndrome, is more likely to be injured in a motor vehicle accident. If the person with OI is hit from behind in a motor vehicle collision and suffers medical damages, such as clavicle fracture, it would not be a valid defense to state that the osteogenesis imperfecta was the cause of the fracture. Case Illustrations In the 1962 English case of Smith v. Leach Brain and Company, an employee in a factory was splashed with molten metal. The metal burned him on his lip, which happened to be premalignant tissue. He died three years later from cancer triggered by the injury. The judge held that as long as the initial injury was foreseeable, the defendant was liable for all the harm. In 1891, the Wisconsin Supreme Court came to a similar result in Bosberg, for example Putney. In that case, a boy kicked another from across the aisle in the classroom. It turned out that the victim had an unknown microbial condition that was irritated, and resulted in him entirely losing the use of his leg. No one could have predicted the level of injury. Nevertheless, the court found that the kicking was unlawful because it violated the order and decorum of the classroom, and the perpetrator was therefore fully liable for the injury. 
In Ben, the appellate court determined that the eggshell rule should have been applied to a case in which a man had a heart attack and died after being bruised in the chest during a rear-end car accident. In the Australian case of Nader v. Urban Transit Authority of NSW, the plaintiff was a 10-year-old boy who struck his head on a bus stop pole while alighting from a slowly moving bus. He developed a rare psychological condition known as Ganser syndrome. The defendant argued that the illness resulted from his family's response to the accident. McHugh-Jaw said, at 537, the defendant must take the plaintiff with all his weaknesses, beliefs and reactions as well as his capacities and attributes, physical, social and economic. If the result of an accident is that a 10-year-old boy reacts to his parents' concern over his injuries and develops an hysterical condition, no reason of justice, morality or entrenched principle appears to me to prevent his recovery of compensation. In the Australian case of Kavanaugh v. Akhtar, the court held the tortfeasor should take into account the plaintiff's family and cultural setting. Equality before the law puts a heavy onus on the person who would argue that the unusual reaction of an injured plaintiff should be disregarded because a minority religious or cultural situation may not have been foreseeable. Exceptions Intervening cause is typically an exception to the eggshell skull rule. If an injury is not immediate, but a separate situation agitates the injury, such as the injured party being involved in a vehicular collision while being taken to a hospital, the tortfeasor is not liable under common law in Australia, refer to Haber v. Walker, and Mahoney v. Krushik demolitions. In Haber v. Walker it was held that a plaintiff will not be liable for a novus actus interveniens, intervening act, if the chain of causation was broken by a voluntary, human act or an independent event, which in conjunction with the wrongful act, was so unlikely as to be termed a coincidence. In Mahoney v. Krushik demolitions the plaintiff, Klogovic, was injured while working on the demolition of a powerhouse for the respondent. While being treated for his injuries, his injuries were exacerbated by the negligent medical treatment of the appellant, Mahoney. It was held that there was no novus actus as a result of medical treatment of injuries caused by the defendant's negligence, unless such treatment is inexcusably bad or completely outside the bounds of what a reputable medical practitioner might prescribe. Vicarious liability is a form of a strict, secondary liability that arises under the common law doctrine of agency, respondeat superior, the responsibility of the superior for the acts of their subordinate or, in a broader sense, the responsibility of any third party that had the right, ability or duty to control the activities of a violator. It can be distinguished from contributory liability, another form of secondary liability, which is rooted in the tort theory of enterprise liability because, Unlike contributory infringement, knowledge is not an element of vicarious liability. The law has developed the view that some relationships by their nature require the person who engages others to accept responsibility for the wrongdoing of those others. The most important such relationship for practical purposes is that of employer and employee. Employer's Liability Employers are vicariously liable, under the respondeat superior doctrine, for negligent acts or omissions by their employees in the course of employment, sometimes referred to as scope and course of employment. To determine whether the employer is liable, the difference between an independent contractor and an employee is to be drawn. In order to be vicariously liable, there must be a requisite relationship between the defendant and the tortfeasor, which could be examined by three tests, control test, organization test, and sufficient relationship test. An employer may be held liable under principles of vicarious liability if an employee does an authorized act in an unauthorized way. Employers may also be liable under the common law principle represented in the Latin phrase, 
Kifakit per aliyam fakit per se, one who acts through another acts in one's own interests. That is a parallel concept of vicarious liability and strict liability, in which one person is held liable in criminal law or tort for the acts or omissions of another. In Australia, the sufficient relationship test, entailing the balancing of several factors such as skill levels required in the job, pay schemes, and degree of control granted to the worker, has been the favored approach. For an act to be considered within the course of employment, it must either be authorized or be so connected with an authorized act that it can be considered a mode, though an improper mode, of performing it. Courts sometimes distinguish between an employee's detour versus a frolic of their own. For instance, an employer will be held liable if it is shown that the employee had gone on a mere detour in carrying out their duties, such as stopping to buy a beverage or use an automated teller machine while running a work-related errand, whereas an employee acting in their own right rather than on the employer's business is undertaking a frolic and will not subject the employer to liability. Principles Liability The owner of an automobile can be held vicariously liable for negligence committed by a person to whom the car has been lent, as if the owner was a principal and the driver their agent, if the driver is using the car primarily for the purpose of performing a task for the owner. Courts have been reluctant to extend this liability to the owners of other kinds of chattel. For example, the owner of a plane will not be vicariously liable for the actions of a pilot to whom he or she has lent it to perform the owner's purpose. In the United States, vicarious liability for automobiles has since been abolished with respect to car leasing and rental in all 50 states. One example is in the case of a bank, finance company or other lion holder performing a repossession of an automobile from the registered owner for non-payment, the lion holder has a non-delegable duty not to cause a breach of the peace in performing the repossession, or it will be liable for damages even if the repossession is performed by an agent. This requirement means that whether a repossession is performed by the lion holder or by an agent, the repossessor must not cause a breach of the peace or the lion holder will be held responsible. This requirement not to breach the peace is held upon the lion holder even if the breach is caused by, say, the debtor's objection to the repossession or resisting the repossession. In the court case of M. Bank El Paso, where a hired repossessor towed away a car even after the registered owner locked herself in it, the court decided that this was an unlawful breach of the peace and declared the repossession invalid. The debtor was also awarded $1,200,000 in damages from the bank. However, notably, a breach of the peace will invariably constitute a criminal misdemeanor. Criminal law imparts separate and distinct liability upon each actor considered a person under the law and therefore a corporation and the corporation's employee may both be charged with having committed exactly the same crime, in addition to any civil liability for which the law imposes. Parental liability. In the United States, the question of parental responsibility generally follows the common law principle that a parent is not civilly liable for injuries resulting from a child's negligence merely because of a parent-child relationship. When a child causes an injury, parents may be held liable for their own negligent acts, such as failure to properly supervise a child, or failure to keep a dangerous instrument such as a handgun outside the reach of their children. Many states have also passed laws that impose some liability on parents for the intentional wrongful acts committed by their minor children. Liability of Corporations in Tort In English law, a corporation can only act through its employees and agents so it is necessary to decide in which circumstances the law of agency or vicarious liability will apply to hold a corporation liable in tort for the frauds of its directors or senior officers. If liability for the particular tort requires a state of mind, then to be liable, 
the director or senior officer must have that state of mind and it must be attributed to the company. In Meridian Global Funds Management Asia Limited for example Securities Commission, two employees of the company, acting within the scope of their authority but unknown to the directors, use company funds to acquire some shares. The question was whether the company knew or ought to have known that it had acquired those shares. The Privy Council held that it did. Whether by virtue of their actual or ostensible authority as agents acting within their authority, refer to Lloyd v. Grace, Smith & Company, or as employees acting in the course of their employment, refer to Armagas Limited v. Mundagas, their acts and omissions and their knowledge could be attributed to the company, and this could give rise to liability as joint tortfeasors where the directors have assumed responsibility on their own behalf and not just on behalf of the company. So if a director or officer is expressly authorized to make representations of a particular class on behalf of the company, and fraudulently makes a representation of that class to a third party causing loss, the company will be liable even though the particular representation was an improper way of doing what he was authorized to do. The extent of authority is a question of fact and is significantly more than the fact of an employment which gave the employee the opportunity to carry out the fraud. In Panorama Developments, Guilford, Limited v. Fidelis Furnishing Fabrics Limited, a company secretary fraudulently hired cars for his own use without the knowledge of the managing director. A company secretary routinely enters into contracts in the company's name and has administrative responsibilities that would give apparent authority to hire cars. Hence, the company was liable. Employees continued liability and indemnity. A common misconception involves the liability of the employee for tortious acts committed within the scope and authority of their employment. Although the employer is liable under respondeat superior for the employee's conduct, the employee, too, remains jointly liable for the harm caused. As the American Law Institute's Restatement of the Law of Agency, 3rd Section 7.01 states, An agent is subject to liability to a third party harmed by the agent's tortious conduct. Unless an applicable statute provides otherwise, an actor remains subject to liability although the actor acts as an agent or an employee, with actual or apparent authority or within the scope of employment. Every American state follows this same rule. The question of indemnification arises when either solely the employee or solely the employer is sued. If only the employee is sued, then that employee may seek indemnification from the employer if the conduct was within the course and scope of their employment. If only the employer is sued, then the employer can attempt to avoid liability by claiming the employee's conduct was outside of the scope of the employee's authority, but the employer generally cannot sue the employee to recover indemnification for the employee's torts. For an example of a court confirming an employer's right to sue an employee for indemnification, see the case of Lister v. Romford Ice and Cold Storage Company Limited. Ecclesiastical Corporations In the 2003 decision Doe for example Bennett, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that in cases of abuse scandals involving Catholic priests, liability derives from the power and authority over parishioners that the Church gave to its clergymen.